Thank you, Mark. Let's be turning, please, in our Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. A few weeks ago, we began moving through the book of Genesis. I want to just say to you here at the beginning that our intention, of course, is to get all the way to the end. We covered the sort of introductory remarks a couple of weeks ago just to introduce you to the book to give you a little bit of the lay of the land, and I likened that to whenever you set out on a trip, you take a look at a map so you know where you're going. It helps you kind of get oriented as to where you're going, and we did that as we looked at our introduction a couple of weeks ago. And then last week, we took our time to look at verses 1 and 2 to establish the pace that God is setting here in this chapter, and that is that He wants His people to see that He is there, that He's always been there, and that He is responsible for absolutely everything. We're going to take our time today and go through verses 3 through 5, and then after today, we're going to pick up the pace a little bit and move through the stories a little bit more quickly. But I feel like these first couple of sermons through the book of Genesis, we need to just slow down a little bit and not miss anything. If we go at this pace for the rest of the duration of Genesis, we'll be in here until all of us die. And so we can't do that because we've got 50 chapters to cover. Um, but I feel like here at the beginning especially, we've just got to slow down a little bit because I think it's really, really easy to miss the point. And then we'll walk away and we won't get what we need to get. So we entitled last week and again this week, and really it'll be this all the way through the first few chapters or the first few verses of chapter 2. The story of creation, and I call it a story, that doesn't mean that it's fiction, it's a true story. It's a story of creation, but here's what it's about. It's about the glory of God being on display. So my contention throughout these verses is that the story of creation teaches one primary thing, and that is the glory of God is on display. And I believe that we will see that very clearly by the end of today in verses 3 through 5. I said to you last week that it's really important for us whenever we study really any portion of Scripture to not come to it as though it's just a collection of platitudes, or to put it a little bit more simply, it's not just this record of clever sayings. It's not just to warm our hearts. You know, it's not like reading Poor Richard's Almanac or Reader's Digest where you just get a few little warm thoughts and it makes you feel better for the day. And I think we tend to kind of approach the Scriptures this way. We tend to sort of piecemeal them out. We have a few favorite verses that we're vaguely aware of. Maybe our grandma, you know, knit for us. Well, it's not knitting. What do you call those cross-stitch things? Yeah, like our grandmother cross-stitched us something when we got married, and it, it hung on our wall for a while, and then we got a little more sophisticated in our taste, and now it's in a box in the basement. But we know it. there's something from Psalm 23 or whatever. Like, we have kind of vague notions of certain portions of Scripture, but we don't always take the time to really understand them and the original intent as to why they're written. And I think nowhere is that more important than the book of Genesis. And I said to you last week, if we're really going to understand how to interpret this book for ourselves today and, and then therefore apply it, we have to think about why it was written in the first place. Most conservative scholars hold out the idea that Moses wrote this book. Now, he may have used some sources that have been handed down to him, either orally or written, but regardless, Moses put, as far as we can tell, Genesis into its final shape. One of the questions that we have to ask ourselves along the way is, what is it that he was trying to communicate? Now, the events of this book happened many, many thousands of years ago. 
just for the sake of reiterating this so it really sinks in, the events of the first 11 chapters of Genesis contain more time, even by the most conservative estimation, than everything since chapter 12 to today. Even if you date the, the events of the Bible in the most conservative way possible, the events of Genesis 1 through 11 cover a longer time span than Genesis 12 till right now. And so it's hard for us to kind of get back into this and say, well, how can something so old have any relevance for us today? And what was Moses trying to say? And though the events of these first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis happened so very long ago, they were written chronologically not that long ago. So if we come about 2,000 years since the time of Christ, the time of writing of the book of Genesis predated Christ by around 14 to 1,500 years. So 3,500 years ago is a very long time to write, which calls into question whether or not this book has any relevance for us whatsoever. Which then begs the question, why did Moses write? Why did he write? As we've already said in the time of Moses' writing, he's writing to a group of people that have just been rescued out of slavery. They've just been taken out of the land of Egypt. They've come to Mount Sinai. They've been given the law. It's kind of like their, their covenant and their constitution. Not too long after that, they break God's law. They abandon Him. And He punishes them by saying, this current generation is not going to get to enter into Canaan, the promised land, but instead is going to have to wander around in exile for a longer period of time to, to learn that they better follow me. They better trust me. And Moses gave the people the book of Genesis to help them interpret what had already happened to them and then to help them look forward to what was coming for them. In this first chapter of the book of Genesis, Moses wrote to help 15th century B.C. Hebrews come to one basic conclusion, and that is this. They are sinful, and it's no big surprise. Yet, despite their sin, there is an amazing God who made them and who shepherds them. And that message was incredibly, vitally, critically important for such a people. Such a people that had seen God's power. Such a people that lived in a land of competing lowercase g gods, idols. Such a people that needed hope. Such a people that needed to place their faith in something much bigger than themselves. And in that case, the events of this first chapter, which happened so many thousands of years ago, and the writing of a book which happened many thousands of years ago, hold relevance for us today. For after all, are we much better than Israel? We struggle with idols today. Lowercase g gods abound all around us. Whether they are official deities of other religions or they are the things that compete for our attention and affections today. Much like 15th century B.C. Hebrews, we are in a period of exile to a degree we long for the finality of reaching the eternal city, the eternal rest with God, but we are not there yet. 
Like those Hebrew people, we struggle with our sin. Like those Hebrew people, we struggle with anxiety. We struggle with fear. We struggle with the unknown. What did Moses' people need to hear? They needed to hear that there's a sovereign God who watched over them, who cared for them, who controlled everything. And if He was for them, what did they need to fear? Likewise, if He was in complete authority, if He controlled all things, to whom else did they owe their allegiance? So you see, ultimately, if we can in some way step back into their shoes, and it's relevant that we do so, the message of this book can come through to us and we can understand its importance for us today. So Genesis helps us deal with our fears. Genesis helps us deal with our idolatry. Genesis helps us see the greatness of our God, that we might obey Him and that we might trust Him. That is why Genesis was written, and that is why we must give it our attention today. So let's look at verses 3 through 5 today. I want to explain them briefly, and then I want to tell you why we're slowing down so much to look at them. Genesis 1, verses 3 through 5. And God said, let there be light. He just speaks and it happens. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. Then God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day. The darkness He called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. Now we've already seen back in verses 1 and 2 that When God began the work of creation, He set the whole thing spinning, but it was sort of formless and void. It was basically chaotic. It was not an environment to be enjoyed, nor was it more specifically an environment which could sustain life. From a literary point of view, we know that all the events that we find recorded here in the book of Genesis are pointing toward one major purpose. And that is, God is eventually, by the end of this chapter, going to create mankind. That's really what He's moving toward in this chapter. Moses wants to make it clear to his audience that God cares very much about mankind. That mankind is the crowning achievement of all of God's creative work. And all the verses that precede that crowning achievement are creating an environment in which the crowning achievement can exist and enjoy their Creator. Let me explain that in a bit of a different way. Genesis, though it does explain in some ways how and why God created, is primarily teaching us that God made man. But the beginning of the book of Genesis is describing the environment in which that man would live. So the question is raised, why did God make an environment like this? Well, God made an environment like this so that mankind's life could be sustained. But notice that this is not just some sterile environment. It's an environment of great beauty. It's an environment of great complexity. It's an environment that is perfect for the crowning achievement of God's creative activity, mankind. We'll see that more as we go down through the 
rest of the chapter, or the rest of the verses in the chapter. But primarily what we're seeing here at the beginning is that the first thing that God did was begin the work of creation, but it was not sustainable for life. Humankind could not exist in such an environment. So we see a lot of chaos, lack of uniformity. The waters themselves back in verses 1 and 2 are not restrained. It's scary. Nothing can live there. And now in verses 3 through 5, God in His goodness begins to set it into order. And I said to you last week, not only do these verses proclaim to us God's creative power, but if you have eyes to see, I think that what Moses is saying here is that God is shaping this world in love. Mothers do this whenever the first child comes. So, mom finds out she's pregnant. Dad is usually basically excited, scared out of his mind, but he's excited. And she says to him, we've got to get the nursery ready, right? And now because of the wonder of Facebook, we get to see every new nursery that every parent ever creates, right? And so if it's a boy, there's usually some shades of blue, and if it's a girl, there's some shades of pink. And, you know, if you're super avant-garde and you use Pinterest, now you're using, like, gray and mustard because that's very sophisticated. And so, you know, somewhere on the wall, you know, you'll put the child's name, and, and now it's becoming, you know, cooler for our generation to go back and use, like, older names, like Hazel's kind of an older name, like, none of us are using names that we grew up with, like, we grew up with, like, you know, I won't even say, because I'll offend somebody, but, but now we don't use those names anymore, like, we don't even like our own names, so we go back and find names from, like, 1789, and we know what they mean, like, I have no idea what my name means, but we know what our children's names means, and so we, we put them up on the wall, and then we stencil, like, a definition underneath it, and there's birds, and there's, like, pythons, and there's Noah's Ark, um, and, and, and then there's like matching duvets and pillows and like every outfit's laid out. We're, we're, ne- we're not. Mom is nesting, right? M- Mom is creating an environment in which perfect little child will exist. If you think about it, if we, being evil, Jesus says, know how to give good gifts, if we know how to prepare good environment, how much more? Does the God of all creation, who loves perfectly, know how to create a perfect environment? God is is basically shaping things now out of love so that His chief creation, mankind, can enjoy themselves and enjoy Him. So God is shaping by His power, and it's important for us to see that. That God is shaping out of love. And what's the first thing that He does? Well, that's what our verses today tell us. God separates the darkness and the light. And He speaks it into existence. Now, even if you take this chapter completely literally, we have to understand there's some figurative kind of language going on here. We know this because God does not make the sun and the moon until a few days later. So where's this light coming from? Is, is it all just metaphor? Is, is he just speaking poetically to some degree throughout the chapter? Or, or is there something else going on here? How, how can there be light without a star of some kind? Is he just speaking metaphorically? Is this all just sort of an illusion? Or, or is this something more? I would submit to you, and I'm going to try to prove this to you as we go through some verses throughout the rest of our scriptures, that there's a reason why 
light comes into the darkness before there's ever any astral bodies, any stars created. I think it's on purpose. That is to say, as God takes the chaos of verses 1 and 2, the unrestrained waters, the darkness, the uninhabitable place that was the beginning of earth. I think there's a reason why verses 3 through 5 come first. I think there's a reason why, why light shines before there's ever a star. Turn with me, please, to John chapter 1. We've just come out of Advent season, Christmas, and we tend to spend a lot of time during Advent season in Matthew chapter 1 and in Luke chapters 1 and 2, where the advent of Christ, the birth of Christ is explained. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which are called the synoptic gospels, that means that they see things kind of the same way. That's what the word synoptic means. The synoptic gospels kind of record a lot of the same material in basically the same order with some exceptions. John, the fourth gospel, is very different. John records different material, and he records it in a very different way. And as John talks about the beginning of Christ here at the beginning of his gospel, he does not talk about the nativity scene. He says nothing about the wise men or about the shepherds. There is not a word said about Mary and Joseph. And yet he does talk about the beginning of Jesus, if we can put it that way. Now, Harvey has already read for us these verses, but I'd like to come back to them now. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through Him. Without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. What's John saying here? Well, like Matthew... And like Luke, John cares about the beginnings. He cares about Jesus' origin. But John predates his nativity. John goes way, way back to the pre-beginning, if I can put it that way. That is to say, though Jesus certainly was born as a man, he truly was incarnate, Jesus had no beginning. And therefore, he came before John the Baptist. He came before John, the author of this gospel. He came before everything. Why is John concerned to proclaim these truths? John will argue throughout this gospel that Jesus is the Son of God, and Jesus Himself is God, and Jesus alone is the King and the Savior of His people. And so, what better way to begin to draw attention to who Jesus truly is than to talk about the fact that He had no beginning and He's in control of everything and He made everything. And notice here what John says about Jesus. In Him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. And that comes on the heels of John saying that all things were made through Him. Well, what does this do, or what does this have to do with any connection at all back to Genesis chapter 1? I've said to you that I think there's a reason why God brings light into the order before He does anything else. And I think there's a reason why He brings light into the order without a star 
before he does anything else. When Jesus comes into the world, we know that he will be called the sunrise. Zechariah calls him that back in Luke chapter 1. And that's exactly who Jesus was. Jesus was the first sunrise. So when you read Genesis chapter 1, verses 3 through 5, what are you seeing? I think what you're seeing is the Son of God Himself who cooperated with the Father and the Spirit in the creation of all things. I think you see the Son of God beginning to shine on mankind. And therefore, He is the source of all life. So before the earth is made and formed into land and seas, before vegetation springs up, before fishes or birds or beasts of the field, or certainly before mankind populates this beautiful habitation, Jesus Himself shines because He is the source of all life. He is called the true light in verse 9. Notice this in John 1, the true light which enlightens everyone. How do we know that? Where do we draw that idea? What's John thinking of when he wrote his gospel? John is connecting his understanding of Jesus as Savior with his understanding of his ancient Hebrew scriptures. And what did John see? John saw the one with whom he had walked the earth, the one whom he had seen die on a cross and be raised from the dead, John saw this one, the Messiah, as the one who had been there from the very beginning, not only giving life through his crucifixion and resurrection, but giving life from the very beginning. And that's what John is saying. This Jesus with whom I walked, he's the life giver. He's always been the life giver. He is our only source of hope. If you think about it, John is proclaiming something incredibly radical here in the opening verses of his gospel. He is not merely saying that Jesus Christ of Nazareth was Messiah, that really died a real death, that really rose from the grave, and that really will come back again for his people. John is proclaiming something even more radical. He's saying that Jesus Christ of Nazareth is very God of very God and that everything that you see around you, in fact, you yourself, you were made by Him. And the very fact that anything around us has any life whatsoever, it's because of Jesus. John could be saying nothing more radical than what he is saying here in the opening verses of his gospel. And therefore, the one that breathed life into the very existence of this globe, he is the one that we can trust to bring life back to dead people. That's what he says in verses 10 through 13. He was in the world. The world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. It had fallen by this point. So what did the life giver do? What did the one who had originated life do? He came to His own, verse 11, and His own people did not receive Him. But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. 
how did this globe, how did the whole universe come into existence? God just spoke it. And He did it through the Word. And Jesus was Himself the Word. Jesus was there in the beginning to bring this globe into existence. But death infiltrated this world that He spoke into existence. So what did the Word who had originally brought light and life to this world do? He invaded it. And He brought His own life and laid it down to give it for those who had come to death. Verse 14 tells us that. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And notice this, we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Is it any surprise that God would use His Son, and we will see in a moment, the exact imprint of His very nature to bring the world into existence? And is it any surprise that God the Father would therefore send that Son by whom He had created back into the world to bring it back to life? Verse 16, from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. So if it's true that this world, if Genesis 1 teaches us that this world proclaims the glory of God, if it's the glory of God on display, Jesus was the chief component of bringing that to pass. Jesus brought the glory of God to bear on this planet. But it wasn't only at the time of creation. He did it again when He took on flesh and came down to be with us. So what does this mean that Jesus was the light? I think probably quite literally, Jesus shined all over the universe in the beginning in Genesis 1, 3-5. Jesus shined. That may sound weird, it may sound incredibly supernatural, and it is, but I think I can prove it to you in a moment. I think that's exactly what Moses is saying. Though he could not have put specificity to it like we can today because we have the New Testament, Jesus shined. There's something radiant about His very nature that brought light where once there had only been darkness and chaos. I think literally that happened. But I think there's some metaphor as well. If Genesis chapter 1 verses 1 through 2 teaches that there's complete disorder, when the light comes in verses 3 through 5 on the first day, order begins to come. For the first time, there's evening and morning. So, so time comes into the equation now. There, there begins to be some order to the disorder. Further, Jesus brings revelation. Jesus is the one who, who proclaims the glory of God to the world. Jesus takes the Father's will and stamps it on the globe. We know, of course, from John chapter 1 that He did more than that, though. He took on flesh and showed us exactly what God was like. So Jesus brings order, Jesus brings revelation and illumination to the world. For if it were not for Jesus, we would not know what God was like, either in creation or in salvation. Likewise, Jesus brings life. Notice back in verse 4 of John chapter 1, John says, In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. Why, in the first day of creation, does the light shine without a star? 
Because the light that comes from Jesus is the very source of all of life that will come in the ensuing days of creation. Jesus brought life. And of course, it's no mistake that eventually He would come back and bring life again. So light points to Jesus bringing order, revelation and illumination, and life. And Jesus being the light also points to the idea that He brings righteousness or His goodness into the darkness. Notice what's going on in Genesis chapter 1. There's darkness and chaos, disorder, an uninhabitable place. But God is creating a world for His glory in which His creatures, His people, humans, could enjoy Him. So what does He do? He unleashes the creative, loving power of the Son to bring it into order. But that world that Jesus, the sovereign, loving Son, brought into order would fall into disorder pretty quickly. We know that from Genesis chapter 3. So what will the sovereign, loving Son do to the world that has been brought into darkness and disorder? He'll come back into it. John says in John 1 verse 5, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. And now the true light, which enlightens everyone, comes back into the world to set it right. This is why Jesus can say in John 8 verse 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Just like Jesus did at creation, and just like he does through his salvation, he brings light into the darkness. John chapter 9, verse 5. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. This does not mean that he extinguished the sun for his 33 years of life. Jesus is speaking metaphorically here. But the metaphor will mix into reality in just a moment, I think we will see. We saw these verses last week, but they're important to remember once again. In Colossians 1, notice what Paul says. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. This doesn't mean that Jesus was created. It means He's the first in rank. And if it's true that He shined His light on the very first day, I think it makes a little bit more sense of Him being the firstborn. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him, and He is before all things, quite literally. If He came on day one and shined His light, He is clearly before all things. And if He, as the light, is the source of all life, in Him all things hold together. What I hope you're beginning to see is there is great cohesion in the Scriptures. And John and Paul wrote, not discrediting or discarding Genesis, but giving new light, pun intended, to Genesis. The writer of Hebrews says in the first few verses of the first chapter, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. Notice these words here. He is the radiance of the glory of God. Just like Genesis 1, 3 through 5. And the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. And after making purifications for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Unless you think this is some new thought, 
Isaiah chapter 60 proclaims this promise. The sun shall be no more your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give you light. But the Lord, Yahweh, will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. Your sun shall no more go down, nor your moon withdraw itself, for the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your days of mourning shall be ended. Now, Isaiah here points to final restoration to some degree when Israel will once again enjoy the presence of God and all things will be made new. But all of that, of course, was initiated when Jesus infiltrated this world and brought His light to bear. Let's look at Revelation chapter 21. I've already said to you that I believe, very literally, that Genesis chapter 1, verses 3 through 5, the first day of creation, proclaimed to us that Jesus shined. Now, his name is not there. I recognize that. But I don't know what else to do with John chapter 1. And I don't know what else to do with the bookend that we find here in Revelation chapter 21. And the reason I call it that is because you see a lot of similarities in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 and Genesis and Revelation chapters 21 and 25, 22. They're the bookends of the Bible, and there's a lot of symmetry between them. Notice what you find here in Revelation chapter 21, verse 22. John says, I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. If the light shined in Genesis chapter 1, verses 3 through 5, and there's no stars yet, that doesn't happen until day 4 in Moses' account, how's that possible? How, how How can there be light with no sun or moon? Well, guess what? It's going to be like that again. Now, I don't know if this literally means there will be no sun in the eternal city. I don't don't know if it's exactly what that means. Revelation is highly metaphorical. But it might mean that because it seems like it meant that back in Genesis chapter 1. Why does it not need a sun? Because the Lamb is there, just like He was back at the beginning. Notice in verse 24 of Revelation 21, By its light... By the light of the Lamb will the nations walk. So there's revelation, clarity. And the kings of the earth will bring their own glory into it. Their own light will pale in comparison. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. There's purity in that city. They will bring it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. And then in Revelation chapter 22, verse 5, John says something very similar. Night will be no more. They will need no light or lamp of sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. How did this globe get here? How did order come out of the chaos? How did life come out of death? The Son of God has been there from the very beginning, bringing order to the disorder, bringing habitable place out of an inhabitable place, bringing life where once there had been no life. And notice here in these verses, he is called the Lamb, which evokes memories of his sacrificial death. The one who came back into the darkness, because remember, darkness overtook the world again. He came back into the darkness and brought life to it. So twice, Jesus, the Son of God, brought light into this world. And one day he's going to do it all over again in its fullness. Turn with me, please, to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 
What I want to do for us now is help us see what relevance this has for our lives. Now, what I've already said to you, I hope, encourages you that Jesus, your Savior, is the source of all life, and therefore you can have confidence in Him. I want you to be in all of Him. But practically speaking, what bearing does this have on our lives? 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Paul says, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's Word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Unless you think I'm making stuff up and putting it back into Genesis 1, verses 3 through 5, I think Paul is explicitly clear here. When God brought light out of darkness, what did he do? He tasked the Son with bringing it to pass, and he did. And therefore, God showed his glory through Jesus. But he didn't just do it on the first day of creation, he did it when he brought Jesus through his mother Mary into this world. And he did it through Jesus as he taught, as he lived, as he laid down his life for us, and as he raised him from the dead. And one day he will send him back and he will shine the light and it will never be overcome. And Paul is saying here in these verses that we therefore have the responsibility. Those upon whom the light of Christ has shone, we have the responsibility to take that light and to shine it everywhere we can. So you see, there is an evangelistic connection back to creation and to redemption. Let me say that very simply. If Jesus is creator, the giver of light, if Jesus is savior, re-creator of light, then we have a responsibility to proclaim that He alone can give light and therefore life. He made you and He made me and He made everyone unto whom you run. And He came and He offered Himself. He laid down His life to take upon Himself the sins of all who would trust Him. And He was raised in victory. And so whenever you tell your neighbor or your family member about Jesus, you're saying, Jesus made me, and Jesus made you, and Jesus can remake you and rescue you from your darkness. So if it's true that the Son of God is Creator, if it's true that the Son of God is Savior, we have the responsibility and, yes, the privilege to proclaim His gospel, His good news to those who still reside in darkness. I think Jesus says something very similar in Matthew chapter 5. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father is in heaven. Remember our title today, 
Creation is the glory of God on display. Jesus was the glory of God on display. And now as his followers, we are his light bearers. We, we demonstrate the glory of God to all those around us. Paul says something similar in Philippians 2. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. If Zechariah could say that the sunrise, Jesus, is about to come visit us, well, that's already happened. So what do we do? We're like mirrors, and we align ourselves toward the sun, and we reflect His glory into the darkness, piercing it where it is desperately needed. We are like a field of solar panels. Maybe you've seen this somewhere in the desert. And we tilt our solar panels toward the sun, and we gather together His goodness and His righteousness and His energy and then we spill it out to those who need it. Jesus is the light of the world from the very beginning. He he invaded the world with His light and brought it back into the darkness. And one day He's coming again, and He will be the very light of that world for all of eternity. But for right now, we are His lampstands. We are His mirrors. We are His solar panels. And we reflect His goodness, His life-giving message to the world around us. What is our final future prospect? Daniel says, At that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. What's our prospect? Our prospect is eternal shining with the one who himself is the light. That's amazing. But notice here, we are called to turn many to righteousness. We are called to be those mirrors, to be those solar panels that reflect and use the power of the sun through the gospel to proclaim His goodness to the world. Clearly, there are those here in Daniel chapter 12 who will reject Him. We saw that in John 1, Jesus came to His own and His own did not receive Him. But there are some who will. How do we know? We proclaim indiscriminately. We, we tell everybody. We tell everybody that Jesus is the one who made them, that Jesus is the one who has come once again to remake them, that they will trust Him, if they will abandon their pursuit of self-righteousness and trust the fact that He has died in their place, that He will take their sin and give them His righteousness, and they can reign with Him as bearers of light forever and ever. So yes, we are called to exult in, to enjoy the light that made us and that made this world around us which we can enjoy and see Him. We are called to rest in the One who has refashioned us by His light. So we are called today to rest, but we are called today to engage the world around us which desperately needs its darkness pierced. So let's turn lastly here back to Genesis chapter 1 to reorient ourselves.
With everything that we've already said today, let's read these verses. God said, let there be light. And there was light, because the sun obeyed, and it wasn't even hard. God saw that the light was good. That's an understatement. And God separated the light from the darkness and begins to bring order into the chaos. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And ever since then, Jesus' light has been shining. It has never been extinguished, and it never will. But we live in a land of darkness. Therefore, we hope in the one who has given us light. Praise be to God that though the darkness is strong, and sometimes it is overwhelming, that we rest in the one who gives us light. But while we wait for him to return and bring his goodness back, we proclaim the one who brought order into the chaos. We speak of the one who brought the revelation of God to the world. We speak of the one who alone can give life. We speak of the one who can bring righteousness to the unrighteous. So, enjoy your Savior today. Exult in Him. Worship Him. Be thankful for Him. Rest in Him. But do not be selfish Because ultimately, isn't it the very nature of light to go out? Isn't it the very nature of light to expose? And Jesus said, we cannot hide our lamps. We are like a city set on a hill, and we must shine for Him. So will we do that? It makes sense that if Jesus is the creator of all light, and therefore life, and if He is the light of the world that brings life back into death, light into the darkness, that we should want to shine it wherever it can go into every nook and cranny of every dark place on this planet. So, whom do you know needs that light shined upon them? They need Jesus, the one who created them and the one who is recreating them. Shine your light and may God get glory as His light bearers do just that. We're going to pray now. In just a moment, the children will come in and rejoin us. So, Corey, if you wouldn't mind, would you let the kids' church teachers know where we're wrapping up? We'll pray, and then we'll pause for just a few moments while the kids rejoin us, and we will partake of the table together today. Let's pray.